Welcome back to The Peripheral. A big thank you to my good friend Adam for sending me this intro track. As you may notice, I don't always use the same intro music. I don't even know if you guys like what I use, but I'm always open to new tracks. Thank you to Amanda, Jenny, Allison, and Vesna for your Patreon support. If I've missed you, I'm sorry. I've had a lot of new donors, and I'm trying to mention everyone. Hopefully my Patreon is working. I had to make some changes, and every time you make a change, it takes it down for five days. I don't know what that's about. But I am working on a personal story about my service in the military, uh, more specifically my boot camp experience and how it molded my thoughts on life. For Patreon supporters only, on this episode I asked for arrest stories. I got a bunch. If I didn't write you back, I apologize. I had an onslaught of of stories and messages, and I just took the first three that came in. This first story is from Brian, who actually designed a new logo that's going to be on my baseball tees and hoodies. They will be available on genypod.com. Brian sent me his recording, which was awesome because he did all the footwork for me. I might ask people in the future if they have a way to record their own story to go ahead and send it to me. There is some background noise that I tried to clean up, so please be patient. It actually kind of goes with the theme of the story, though. All right, so hopefully this works. I've never used any type of recording on my phone before, and I'm going to be really annoyed if I go through all this, and it doesn't work. But anyways, uh, here's the story, Justin, of how I got arrested. And I just want to start with a disclosure, like, this story is probably not as exciting as some real serious uh, situations, but I mean, it was serious to me at the time, and it has some humor in it, and, but anyways, um, I'll start on the front end by saying what, what I did, and um, I was clocked on the freeway by a California Highway Patrol officer doing 156 uh, miles an hour while racing someone. And then proceeding to try to run away from the, the cop. Or cops, plural, I guess, in the situation there was, there was plural. Let me kind of go back in time before that to kind of give you a backstory what like what led into that and why I was in that situation. So um, I had a really close friend um, that I met in second grade. Uh, you know, you'd say it was the best friend that I grew up with. And uh, he was a big gearhead and got me into cars. Even at that young age, we were into cars and... It just grew and developed, and um, when we uh, got to high school, we met a third friend, and we became kind of like a little trio that was always hanging out together, always together, always doing, talking, and uh, messing around with cars, car video games, you know, we we fantasized about our favorite cars and wanting to have those cars, and, uh, you know, cars within reason, too, cars that we could actually own, Um, and, and we're all from middle class for the most part, you know, we're not well off by any means so uh we thought you know this is a real possibility with uh you know getting our own jobs and stuff and it all happened a lot faster than we even maybe anticipated but we did end up getting our uh our dream car so how it worked out is my uh my friend from second grade his name is mike he got his car first and uh he got a job first that's the other reason why um i was the second one to get a job and my parents kind of struck a deal with me. Uh, they bought the car up front for me as like a loan. And through my job that I got uh, working at the famous Blockbuster video, which no one's heard of anymore, or you know, younger people don't really know that much about, um, I was paying them back, per se, handling the expenses and stuff. 
And then um, our friend that we met in high school, his name's Eric. He got his car last, also through getting employment and stuff, and a little help from his parents. What happened was we got really into these cars. We were basically dumping all of our paychecks, all of our, uh, all of our money that we had free into tuning them, upgrading them. And, um, you know, back, back when I was younger, this is like, this all happened roughly about almost 12 years ago. Um, you know, tuning cars and, and stuff like that was a lot bigger than it is now, I believe, uh, or at least maybe I'm older and I just don't realize that it's still big, but it doesn't seem like it's big anymore. Um, you know, and we're not talking like Honda Civics here that, you know, kind of all sound the same for the most part and are, uh, you know, put together with, uh, shoddy work and parts from like the downtown, uh, auto parts store. We're, we're talking, we had pretty crazy cars, you know, they, they were fast and, um, We'll get to that a little later. Obviously, you can tell by the miles per hour I was doing that they were fast, but you know, the car that I was racing at the time is a, a very fast car and had a lot of money into it, and I, and I definitely had no problem you know, beating that car. But um, what I owned was a 1991 Toyota MR2 Turbo. Had a lot of money into the fuel injection system, um, you know, the, uh, the suspension. Um, I had upgraded um, cams, uh, I had ECU upgrades boost control, you know, I had the whole nine. Uh, I'm probably forgetting stuff because like I said, it was a long time ago, but, but anyways, we would get into, uh, you know, little, little adventures. Uh, we have mountains close by. I'm in California. Uh, we would go for, you know, really nice drives. Uh, just the three of us, you know, just putting our cars to the floor on open mountain roads, you know, twisty roads, getting, getting a little crazy, a little adventurous, having some close calls um, and nothing really deterred us. And I think this event that happened was the first thing that really like, you know, shell shocked us and was like, wait a second, like, you know, although we just, you know, let what our parents say go in one ear and out the other, this is serious. Like, you know, people can get hurt. Um, and, and someone did get hurt and, I, and I'll kind of go into that at the end, but I had gotten a, um, into an accident. Uh, I had just got a new clutch and flywheel and I wasn't quite used to the car. Uh, I'm sorry, used to the clutch yet. So at a stoplight, I was like half paying attention and I stalled the car when the light turned green. Well, the car behind me rear-ended me, caused uh, some damage to my bumper and kind of in shock, I, I look back and this car, it's a lifted SUV and they immediately cut traffic off and turn right through the intersection, almost caused another accident and they just bolt. And I had no idea what the damage to my car was at the time. So I just, you know, turned my car back on, got to the side of the road and figured out what the heck was going on. We didn't get a license plate, never caught them. But, you know, that kind of annoyed my dad because they had to fork a little money to fix it. And I owed them even more money. So they took my car away uh, until I paid what was owed uh, for the repair of the bumper. And um, there's a theme throughout this story that when I reflect on it now as an older, wiser person, um, that I'm like, I'm, I'm so lucky that not to bring like race into this, but that I'm a, you know, a white middle-class male. I can only imagine if I was Hispanic or African-American, like the circumstances that I'm going to tell in this tale, like I feel almost disgusted that like, I know the outcome would be different if my skin was a different color. Um, but anyways, so th that accident happens. My parents take away the car. I pay back what was owed for the repairs, get my car back. Almost immediately after getting my car back, I get a stupid ticket uh, I was going to pick up a girl that I was seeing near a school zone and school was in session, but there's no kids around. And I was going like 40 miles an hour and I got a ticket because I was supposed to be only going 25. It was a real dick move by the cop. I don't even know where he was. And I wasn't like recklessly driving or anything, 
but nonetheless, you know, hey, I sped, whatever. Well, when my dad found out, my parents found out, car got taken away again. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't blame them because it was so shortly after they just, uh, they just gave me my car back for, um, you know, what they called a quote unquote stupid accident before. Now, I, I don't remember the exact time frame because it was, you know, 12 years ago, but um, some time had passed and no car. It, it was maybe a couple weeks and my father was actually buying a new car, um, a Mustang that he had to go pick up in LA. We go to LA, it's about a three hour drive with traffic, it's about four. So it's about a four hour drive if you know anything about LA uh, to go get this car. Now I go with my dad um, so that I can drive back our or their car while he drives back his new Mustang. Had a really awesome trip with my dad. He was very thankful for his help, for my help. Uh, this got me in his good graces. And uh, you know, he says, hey, you know what? Go hang out. We got back around like, I think it was like six, seven, 8 p.m. at night. He's like, go hang out with your friends. Here's your car back, gives you the keys. I got my car back. And uh, we, we used to do a thing here um, in my town uh, in California called cruising. Uh, and there's this main street that everyone took like their, you know, what they felt was their, you know, super badass, like lifted lower truck. Lower truck was the big thing back then with bags and, or, you know, your, your tuned car, um, or your, your fast muscle car, whatever it is. And we cruised this street. Um, it was, this street was maybe like five miles long and you kind of just went, you know, one into the other back and forth, um, you know, for hours. And, uh, you know, you get into races and little scuffles and, you'd stop at food places and, and hang out and, you know, you'd see the same people. And, and sometimes it would even get to a point where you would actually meet up with, um, with people and you'd go out in the middle of nowhere. Cause we're surrounded by like farmland and country and we'd actually go racing. Now on this particular night, after I've been given my car, I go pick up my friend, Mike, that I mentioned before. And my buddy, Eric, that I mentioned before is going to meet us uh, a little later, um, you know, like 30, 45 minutes later, he had to do something. I don't even remember what it was, but I'm, I'm with Mike and we're heading down to this road to go, you know, cruising. This guy in a uh, 69 Chevelle SS is on the street next to me as we're approaching where we're going to go. And he's kind of antagonizing me. He's kind of, uh, you know, revving his engine a little bit, you know, like popping the, the hood up a little bit with acceleration next to me you know, antagonizing me, showing me that he wants to race. I normally, under normal circumstances, be like, all right, let's smoke this guy, like some real Fast and the Furious shit, if you know what I mean. Um, as lame as that may sound, now that I'm almost 30, but, you know, I, I was actually, I was good. I, you know, I was telling Mike, my buddy in the car, I was like, you know, what's this idiot doing? Um, you know, and I just got the car back, so I had the mindset that, like, I don't want to do anything to screw this up. Like, I just want to have a good time and have my car back. It was pretty uh, relentless, and I was to the point where, like, he looked at me, and he's like, just destroy this guy, because we knew that we had the horsepower on him and the and uh, the speed on him more than likely, because it looked like more of, like, a, um, a restored Chevelle uh, that looked pretty. It didn't look like it had a lot of money in it. It didn't look like it was, you know, crazy tires or anything, so he um, starts to go on the freeway, and I follow him. And as soon as we hit the, off the ramp, we both just floor it. And, um, you know, needless to say, I just blow his doors off. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. That's what I thought. Um, you know, me and my buddy are like hyping, you know, happy. And I, and I, I'm reaching my top speed at this point because we were weaving through traffic. It's like almost midnight. Traffic wasn't bad, but there was cars and we're weaving around cars and I was going fast. Like my speedometer only would go to 160 and I was almost pegged. And uh, he was like maybe three or four or five cars behind me. 
I was about to say in my mind, some, my, my buddy Mike, I was like, okay, that's enough. And I was about to let off the gas. Well, as I'm thinking that, I see red and blue lights just flash out of my out of my left eye in my peripheral, uh, you know, no pun intended. And um, it's a cop. And he was sitting on the side of the freeway, you know, clocking people. And I look at Mike and, you know, we kind of had the same thought and I was too scared to say it, but he's like, he said it for me. He's like, dude, just run. Because, you know, our thought process is like, I'm going like almost 160 miles an hour, 150 miles an hour. This guy is dead stopped in the dirt, this cop. There's no way he's gonna catch me. I just need to go and I need to hit the, the next exit I can, jump into a neighborhood and just park and turn my lights off. By all means, this isn't anything that I've practiced before, or experienced before, I'm not running from cops. It was just that the severity of what was going on is like, oh my God, like, I feel like this is what we need to do. And looking back on it, I wish I just pulled over. But anyways, so I, I take off and, and the red and blue lights are, you know, within seconds are way behind me. Cause like I said, he's not a dead stop and he has to get on the freeway and start going and I'm gone. So I pass one exit and I get to the next exit and I had maybe driven about a mile going over 120 miles an hour. I hit the exit and as I'm hitting the exit, there is a helicopter light that hits my car. And I knew, I was like, and I'm turning right off the exit to like just go into a neighborhood and this light just boom on my car. And I'm like, unreal, like I'm, I'm done. Like everything's passing through my mind. I'm freaking out. I'm 18 years old. I'm shaking, I don't know what to do. I just, I don't even see cop cars. I just pull over and there's a cop car immediately behind me. And we, we later found out that for good reason, this is actually like a setup. There was actually a street racing unit in my town at the time and that Chevelle was actually a police officer and I I was I was in basically entrapped if you will I don't know if that's the proper legal term but I mean I, that's a whole nother story I could talk about that for a long time but anyways so there's a cop car immediately behind me the helicopter light goes away I'm freaking out because the car lights um, the, the big bright from the CHP officer uh, is right in my window I can't see anything and he's yelling on the megaphone He's like, turn the engine off, put, throw the keys out the window. And I want to see both hands out the window now. And he's yelling and he's counting and I'm like disoriented. So I, I you know, my cars, I turn my car off. I chuck my keys out the window and I have my hands sticking out the window. And a, and a little, little tidbit that I'll tell you, um, I played a lot of sports in high school and I played basketball and a couple days before that I had rolled my right ankle pretty badly. Um, so I was a little hobbled and, and that'll make sense in a little bit. So I, I stick my hands out the window after dropping my keys, my car's off. And like I said, this bright light is just flooding my car. I can't see anything. I just hear voices. And within a matter of seconds, like my door flies open and my arms are grabbed and I'm like face to concrete. Um, my left arm was held by the officer and I barely had enough time to stick my right arm out to shield my face from going face first into the asphalt. And, um, you know, my hands get put behind my back, I get handcuffed and then I get picked up and, and I'm a big guy. I'm, I'm six, two. I got some weight on me. Um, I won't embarrass myself with a number, but I got some weight on me. And back then I did too. And, um, I mean, this, this cop just manhandled me and just grabbed me, picked me up and put me straight onto the uh, hood of my car. Um, and I, I, I got a little glimpse of him as that was happening. And honestly, like, it's funny to say this, but like picture your typical, like highway patrol, like drill sergeant, badass officer, you know, military cut white guy. Um, that, that's what this guy was. 
and he is just like firing off in my ear, just like, what were you thinking? And, I, and the only thing I could think to do is just respond with like, I'm sorry, sir, and sirs everywhere. And, you know, I apologize and I don't know what I was thinking. And I'm trying everything I can not to cry in front of my best friend who's probably never seen me cry besides when we were young kids. And he's in the passenger seat still and his partner, which was um, an African-American guy, uh, he, he's talking to my friend and my friend gets out of the car and they're just talking like almost casually, which I found really weird in this whole situation. I thought like my world was ending and like, I'm like, you know, fearing death almost when there's no reason to fear death. But like, I'm in this crazy situation where like, I'm, I'm like almost hyperventilating and um, I, I'm seeing out of the on the sidewalk next to my car, like my best friend and this other officer, like almost having a casual conversation. And I'm like, what is happening right now? So I get handcuffed and being handcuffed is just an unreal experience. I know Justin, you know what that's like because you've told stories, um, you know, involving that. Uh, but anyways, I, I being a big guy, like I mentioned, I, I get immediately pulled to the back of their squad car and he's about to put me in. And as he, as he's about to put me in, he stops for a second and he hasn't spoken to me in about a minute or so at this point. And he, he's like, where's your wallet? Where's your information? And I said, it's in my back pocket. Because he, he, was, he was proceeding to search me. And he's like, do you have anything that's going to stick me or anything like that? And I, and I said, no. Um, and he pulled my wallet out. And then he said, and then that, he took another pause. And I'm like, thinking in my head, I'm like, is he going to put me in the back of this cop car? What is he doing? And then all of a sudden, he opens his driver door. And he just shoves me as hard as he can into the seat and pushes my head into the steering wheel. And they have like this um, machine apparatus, if you will, that's like on their dash that shows like the details of a person that you've clocked on your radar gun. And right there is my miles per hour and like these like ominous, like, you know, menacing red lights. He's like, read that to me, say it out loud. And he's just yelling at me. And I'm like 156 and he's like, you're going 156 miles an hour. He's like, you could have killed yourself. You could have killed your friend. He's like, you could have killed anybody. Boom, it's over, it's done. He's like, did you want that to happen? And you know, the typical thing that you would expect a parent or a cop to say in this situation, and by all means, you know, he's right. Um, I, I don't, it was such a blur and such a panic and such a, a crazy situation. I barely remember like my responses, but I'm sure I said something to the extent of like, no sir. And, and anyways, so they, he pulls me back and these handcuffs are on so tight. Like I can't even feel my fingers at this point. And he puts me in the back seat and keep in mind, like, again, I'm 18. I'm a good kid. Like I, I haven't really done, I don't have anything that I've done wrong you know, besides being like, you know, ditching school and getting in trouble for that. That's really it. He, he puts me in the back of the car and I barely can fit because of my size. Like I'm tall and the back seats are, you know, they're crazy small and I'm like kind of to the side, but like the way I'm sitting, like my, the handcuffs are like digging into my hands cause they're tight as hell anyways. And this whole situation is just a shit show. So I'm freaking out and the, and the cop, you know, they, they run my information and I'm guessing that they saw that the car was like co-signed in mine and my parents' name. They saw that I lived at an address that my parents' name was at. They saw my age. They saw that I had like one speeding ticket ever that wasn't too egregious. It was the one I mentioned. You know, all of that nonsense. Now, at this point, I'm like, I'm going to jail. Like, you know, what the hell is going to happen? I see my friend, Mike, um, you know, walk away down the street, like away from my car, to the, uh, from the African-American officer that he was with, his, the guy's partner, 
and the guy's partner comes and sits in the car with him and they're like diddling on the computer and like I barely remember any of their conversation because I was so panicked and freaked out um and I see my friend walking down the street I see a tow and then they're out of the car for a while like talking to a, a in front of their hood the tow truck driver comes and takes my car um I left my cell phone in the car which you know cell phones had just become popular at that point um uh, you know they were new but they weren't too new to where like you still remembered phone numbers the only phone number I remembered was my my parents home phone which that'll play in in a minute now they get the, the tow truck driver takes my car away they come back and they're they're beginning to drive off and they're 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 kind of talking amongst each other and I, like again I don't it's 12 years ago and I don't even remember anyways because of you know my emotions at the time but you know I do remember bits and I remember that the African-American officer was a lot more reasonable and, uh, like, you know, sympathetic. I, I, you would have thought that the officer that arrested me and that threw me on the hood and stuff, you would have thought that I killed one of his family members. Like, that's how crazy he was acting. And not to say that he wasn't warranted, you know, given what happened. But anyways, they're talking back and forth. And, it, and I got the feeling that the uh, African-American officer, his partner, was actually trying to, like, maybe like lessen what was going to happen to me trying to figure out a way like to be on my side I all I could think of in my head was like I'm it doesn't matter what these guys do because my dad's just gonna kill me anyways so this is just delaying the inevitable and um they drive down the road and next thing I know we had been driving for like two minutes that's it they pull into an AM PM and we're in a really bad part of town. Like I, I live in Fresno, California and it's been rated like top five murder capital of the, of the United States, like several times. And we're in pretty much one of the worst parts of Fresno at this point. And they pull into an AM PM. And, uh, I don't know if you have those on the East coast or the, the Midwest or whatever. Um, but anyways, it's a, it's like a seven 11, get out of the car. It comes around and he pulls me out of the car and he starts talking to me like, really calm and actually really respectful, uh, the gentleman before, the officer that was, you know, crazy with me. And he says, you know, hey, um, I look at your record, I look at your age, and I think that you made a really stupid mistake that you regret. And I think that this moment will never leave your mind, and I think that you really learned a lot from this. Um, and I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, holy crap, he's going to let me go. And I was like, well, wait, they took my car. And I'm like, wait, what's going on? So he says, I'm not going to take you to jail. He's like, we have... Um, bigger things on our plate tonight uh, that we need to get to. He's like, but here, I've given you a ticket and you may face jail time. He's like, I'll let a judge decide that. I'm not going to decide it tonight for you. Now, the legality of it, what I believe happened, what I understand um, is that he, he, he basically lied on the ticket. He dropped the miles per hour down to make it not a felony or, or something like that. And, and that allowed it to not be a straight to jail situation. He dropped the miles per hour down to like 128 miles an hour or something like that on the ticket, even though that was false. And um, he took my cuffs off and uh, he even told me when he took his cu my cuffs off, he's like, I'm really sorry. He's like, I was really, I was really emotional and I was really upset with you. He's like, I, I might've put these on a little too tight. And I looked down at my hands and there's like these giant purple rings on my hands and my, my fingers are so pale. You know, I'm already pale as heck anyways, but they were like super pale and I could like barely feel them. They're super tingly. And he said, you know, do you have a way to get home? And I'm so freaked out and I'm so happy that he took the cuffs off. I just said, yes. I didn't even like want it. I wanted them to be gone. And I just said, yes. And then they leave. And as they leave, I realized that I don't have my cell phone. It was towed in my car. And the only number that I know by heart is my 
mom's cell phone, my dad's cell phone, and my house phone. And there is no way in hell I'm calling either of those three numbers given what just happened. So I'm like, shit. And I, I walk into the AMPM realizing what part of town I'm in. The AMPM is just like a fortress of bulletproof glass. That's how bad a part of town I am. Um, and they just saw me, uh, you know, a pretty big guy get unhandcuffed by police officers in their parking lot and wander into their store. So when I looked at the clerk and said, can I use your phone? And he said, no, I mean, I don't even blame him. Like, honestly, like at the time I was like, why, why can't I use your phone? And he just said, no, leave. And I, I get it, you know, now. So I, I started walking home and we're talking, you know, it was like 1230 at night, I think at this point or midnight, somewhere around there. This walk was, was a walk. Let me tell you. Um, I mean, it had to be at least 15 miles, roughly, you know, give or take. And I just started walking. I knew the streets well enough. I grew up there and I'm like, I'm just going to start walking. And remember how I mentioned my ankle that I hurt? I'm walking as a, and I'm, I'm limping actually because I have a hurt ankle all this distance home and I'm just reflecting on everything and it's just tearing me up for all this time and all this time. And it's like three in the morning, um, it's like two, three in the morning, if I'm remembering correctly, by the time I started getting close to my house and I'm literally, I'm not even kidding you, like two blocks away from my house. I'm like, I'm like a five minute walk, five, 10 minute walk away from my house at this point after a couple of hours of walking and a friend that I know drives by and says, Hey, you need a ride home. And I'm like, really? Like, where were you like two hours ago? Like seriously? Um, so I get home and I'm just like exhausted. I think that walk home was good though. Cause I probably never would have slept if I didn't have that walk home. So I just pass out in bed and, um, next morning comes my dad wakes me up and here's the funny thing about my dad. My dad's a, you know, LA ex LAPD ex military, you know, your typical strict, you know, he's a great dad, nothing bad to say about him, but he was your typical strict, like old school dad. You know, he would never be the guy that would come in your room and be like, good morning, bud. You know, how you doing? I love you. But you know, he, he comes in that day for some reason and he wakes me up and he's like, Hey, I'm so sorry to bother you, which is not like him. He's like, I, you know, I want to let you sleep. He's like, I just want to make sure like your car's not in the garage. Did you get a ride home and your car's parked at a friend's house or something? He's like, is everything okay? I was so f mad and just exhausted and just like scared and didn't even know. I was like, I just have to be truthful and just like face the, face the music. So I tell my dad, I'm like, the cops took it. And I turned my head away from him because I was afraid to look at him as I said those words. And next thing I know, my mattress is being uplifted as I'm flying off of it into the corner of my room because my dad has flipped me off the bed. So, you know, I, I, I tell them my parents what happened. I thought my dad was going to kill me. They got my car back from the police. They sold it. They never let me see it. They kept my dad kept it at his work, I believe. I had my day in court and um, I had no idea what to expect. I didn't know what was going on. I was just told to show up on the day of the ticket, on the information off the ticket and the stuff that came in the mail. My mom went with me. I I'm in this uh, like serious traffic offenses court. It's like in the basement of our courthouse. It's super just like shady feeling. There's all these like really crazy people in there that have done like DUIs and like just really bad people. And I'm this 18 year old kid and I'm just... I don't even know what to do. Like, I can't even like express the emotions that I was feeling at that time. And I thought, is the cop going to show up and be like, look, like we had important things going on, so we couldn't bring him in. But realistically, this is what he was doing. 
Like, he was going 156 miles an hour, and I'm going to jail. And then the next thing that happens is, like, I have this random public defender, like, going over my information with me, asking me what really happened, telling me what I'm going to tell the judge. And I'm 18 years old, and I'm, like, struggling to keep it together. And my mom is just, like, nonstop crying because she thinks I'm going to jail. I, I get in front of the judge, and uh, the judge, uh, you know, is reading off, like, all of this legal mumbo-jumbo talking about my case, the numbers, and I don't know if you've ever been to court, but, you know, going off, and I don't even know what he's saying, and he's, like, everyone before that with, like, DUIs and stuff and, like, other stuff, they've kind of, like, been really quick, and they've said, like, you know, guilty, not guilty, and he, the judge would just, like, sentence something. He gets to me, and he's about to just, you know, my, my public defendant says, you know, he pleads guilty, or he pews no contest. I don't even remember. But anyways, the, the judge is about to like give me like a fine or, or give like a judgment. And, um, you know, he seemed calm and I'm like, this is good. Like I haven't really, I don't see him like freaking out. It seems like he's just going to give me like a fine or, or set a, I don't know. And then all of a sudden the city attorney or county attorney or district attorney or assistant district attorney, whoever's in charge for the, the county or the city steps in and says, your honor, I'd like it to be noted that through personal um, information submitted by the uh, arresting officer um, at the scene or the ticketing officer at the scene, the defendant uh, actually was clocked at X amount of miles an hour. And out loud, she says 156 miles an hour. He was, um, he, he ran from the police only to, um, I don't know what the verbiage she used, but basically give up. Um, and he was at risk to harm and, you know, possibly kill people. And we don't believe, and we, and we believe that jail time is warranted in this situation. And my mom just loses it when she hears this. And I'm like, my knees go weak. I'm standing there. And like, again, my parents have never been in this situation. My mom's British. She's not even a, from this country. Um, you know, she's lived here a long time, but you know, she grew up in Australia and in England. She didn't know what to expect. Um, my dad didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to expect. So I showed up to this courtroom in like cargo shorts and like a, a short sleeve polo which was a big no-no. And as soon as the judge really like paid attention after he heard those words from the attorney and saw what I looked like, he went off on me. And I'm like sitting there like, I'm going to jail. I'm going to jail. I had recently quit the job at Blockbuster a couple weeks before this incident happened. Um, so he was asking me these questions about my employment and what my bills are. And I'm telling him like, I'm not employed. I was, re I, you know, just quit my job. And he's like, so your parents pay for this, your parents pay for this, your parents pay for this, your parents pay for this. He's like, you got this car, you did this with it. And he's like, and then this is how you repay them. And he's like, do you not see a problem with this? And he's just basically laying the hammer down on me. And I am just panicking. And I'm like, I'm going to jail. You know, he looks at me and he says, I see your previous record and it's non-existent. So I have to believe that this is a, a really big mistake. And he's like, this is what I want to do. He's like, I, I need you to correct all of these things. And he lays out a list uh, of all these things. And he's like, I'm going to give you 90 days. And he's like, the most important thing on this list that I want you to correct is I want you to be employed. And I want you to have a record through bank statements of you giving deposits to your parents to show payback for the expenses that they've given you. And I want you to show that you have a full-time job or that you have a part-time job and you're in school, you know, by this date. And if you show up to my courtroom again in shorts, he's like, I won't even say a word to you. I'll just have the sheriff take you to the jail. And I'm like, 
oh my god, thank you. Like, in my head, I'm thinking, like, I just dodged the hugest bullet. And it kind of goes back to what I mentioned when I very first started. Like, knowing what I know now and being, in, you know, mature and having the knowledge of the world now and everything that our country is going through, like, I think about, like, what if I was African-American or what if I was Hispanic or what if I was even Asian? Like, would this, would this gone down the same way? Would this all have happened the same way? I don't think so. And it's, it's really hurtful and it's kind of gross that we live in a country that, you know, this is the case. Um, you know, in closing, I, I got a great job that I actually worked for for a long time. Um, and I got everything on that list checked off by the 90 day mark. And I came into court you know, in slacks and uh, a dress shirt and a tie. And I, I wrote, I wrote a personal essay to the, to the judge and I, I, I gave it to him and I said, look, I can read this out louder. If you want to read it, I don't want to take up a lot of your time, but I wanted to thank you for what happened. And I want to let you know how this shaped my life and changed my life. And, you know, he was true to his word and he saw the change in me and he, he just gave me a very, very, very large fine. You know, it was, it was four zero. It was three zeros. I'm sorry, um, for my my incident and uh, some community service, and I I just started crying in the courtroom. I was so happy. I I still didn't know if I was not going to go to jail because he even told me when he laid out the list of things he wanted me to correct. He said, "When you come back here with this list corrected, he's like, it's not a guarantee that I'm not going to put you in jail. I just want you to know that. But I'm going to give you some time to show me something." And I'll never forget it. Um, I thank him so much. Uh, that was a huge turning point in my life. And it, it put the shock into myself, my friends, about like our lifestyle and what we were doing. And, and I could elaborate. I could really go into stories about how reckless we were and how we could have easily, any one of us, died or killed someone with our actions in those vehicles. Um, and we really became to appreciate our vehicles and, you know, go on long drives and be responsible and just appreciate our vehicles in a safe way. Now, the irony is, unfortunately, you know, a few years later, um, on a trip to the lake near us while it was raining, my, my best friend Mike, while adjusting his radio and, you know, not paying attention to the road for one second, a, um, a truck was drifting into his lane. And as he tried to swerve, it made it a little worse. And he actually got in a car accident and, and died, you know, and we had been responsible and safe and learned from our mistakes and thought we dodged, you know, literal death, you know, possible death or possible, you know, life imprisonment for killing someone else for what we used to do, um, only to, you know, have it just snatched away through, you know, a freak accident. And, um, you know, me and Eric, who I've mentioned the story, are still best friends to this day. And we still remember Mike to this day. Um, and we still remember that incident to this day when we see, you know, young kids in their cars and, and trying to go fast and, and, and everything and thinking about like how naive we were and like how we just thought we were untouchable and indestructible and saw how it affected our families and destroyed our families and almost destroyed us. But yeah, I mean, I, I can elaborate a little more. Uh, I can touch it up a little more. I, I don't know if it fits into what you're looking for for your episode, Justin, but I did want to share it with you. I'm a huge fan. Um, obviously, you know, I, with the artwork and everything, but thank you for your time, man. And, uh, Next up is Jamie, who was arrested for a DUI, but her story takes a turn much later after the arrest. Um, Jamie Coulter. In 2009, I had uh, gone to the brewery that was a town over and had a few beers, I think three, 
but you know they're stronger at the brewery whatever and drove home and I thought I was fine but I wasn't and I got pulled over I literally was at my um, I lived in an apartment at the time and I was turning left into the driveway of the apartment complex when he pulled me over um, because I hesitated we had just moved in not too long ago so pulled me over and I mean he was a nice cop it was totally embarrassing you know I did the you know ABCs and touch your nose and you know side to side walking and you know in front of all this traffic and it's just like oh my god the field you know, sobriety tests and all that yeah oh it's just so you know what gets me is like they know that you're drunk why do I need to go through these like just arrest me put me in the car and like, let's move on with it. You know, why do I have to do all these things? They're just building evidence against you really at that point. So when you go to court and you try to fight it, that they're like, look at all this. (laughs) Very true. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. I guess I was just like, Oh my God, just arrest me already. (laughs) But he handcuffed me and I just started crying because I'm like, oh my God, I've never been in trouble in all my life. But he was nice. He let me call my boyfriend at the time and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I've been arrested. I'm going to jail. So I spent a few hours in jail and was released and then had to deal with lots of fun stuff after that. I mean, the the aftermath of the DUI was just terrible. Um, I think the first thing I had to do was I had to go to like three or four AA classes. I mean, I, I don't know. It's like, why do I have to go to AA? I mean, I understand I was drunk, but it doesn't necessarily mean I'm an alcoholic. Um, uh, there, here's a weird definition that uh, I've heard people say, and people say that, alcoholism or drug addiction is not based upon your physical dependency of it, but how it impacts your life in a negative manner. True. Yeah. So therefore you're getting arrested for drinking. Therefore Mm -hmm. it's impacting you negatively. Yeah. And that's what I, I kind of learned because I had to go, um, to a, and this was terrible, um, to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I'm not sure what it was, but that was one of the worst things. Um, I had to take all of these tests and things like that. And, you know, how much do you drink and answer all these questions. And then at the end, he talked to me about how horrible it was, you know, to have a DUI and I could have killed someone. And he went on and on. And I was just crying at the end of that, you know, because you just feel like a piece of shit, you know. And then, so I had AA, I had the um, trip to the counselor. Then I had to go to a mother's against drunk driving, which was... So sad, you know, it was another thing. What does that, that entail? Know. So there was a mother who told us the story of how her son was killed um, in a drunk driving accident. It's been a few years ago, and I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I know he was ran over in the road because he was drunk and he got out of the car and, you know, things like that. Fortunately, it was just one mothers against drunk driving class because that was 
so sad. I wish I could remember more detail of, I think I tried to block it out because it was such a horrible few months. It really this- drove the point home that what you did is very serious and and mm-hmm. can can cause loss of life and Oh, absolutely. It did its job. Let me tell you, I've never had a drink and gotten behind the wheel. So it it absolutely served its purpose, you know, to the point where it also made me feel terrible about myself. And I was so scared at the time I was in school and I thought it was going to affect how I did as far as being a physical therapist and if people would hire me. And, you know, I was just really concerned about that. And fortunately, that's never been an issue, which I'm really surprised because um, I also learned that once it's on your record, it's always on your record. You know, people say seven years, but um, it doesn't go away. (laughs) I think that you know, it impacts your driving record for seven years negatively. But as far as people seeing it, it's always there. Yeah. If a cop is ever running your, your tags or your plates, they can they can see this. And, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, they can pull you over for anything, really. But when they see yeah. that you've had a DUI and it's a Friday night at 1030 at night, they might just pull you over to see if you're drunk again. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that we had to do in the county that I lived in was go to a, uh, I don't even know what to call it. It was like a, a camp, I guess, for people that had DUIs. We stayed for, no, so two nights, Friday night and Saturday night. And we were there all day Sunday also. And it was basically just <laughs> learning about... You know, how, you know, if you blow a .08, they have a pair of goggles you put on, and this is what it looks like when you drive it, you know, at this level of being drunk, and so on, and so on, and just... Just re-emphasizing over and uh, over. Over and over and over. I mean, it was the same thing, you know, they they told us that um, cops would sometimes go to bars and mark your tires... To, and then come back around to see how long you've been there. Just different strategies that police have to pull you over. And at the very end, the the guy who was kind of running the, the class brought in his wife, who I guess was an alcoholic, and then she told her story. So, and I mean, this was just such a sad time. I mean, between the Mothers Against Drunk Driving and the counselor and this camp, it was like, Jesus Christ, yeah. just feel horrible about yourself. Hitting you over the head over and over again, how sure. you're a bad person and this is a bad thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And it really, uh, it did its job. And, you know, and it hit your wallet, oh, yeah. too. What was the it, final uh, budget on that? How much did it cost Oh, my you? God. Between the court costs and, of course, you had to pay for the the Mothers Against Drunk Driving and you had to pay for the camp and the court costs, so like probably two grand. But what hurt the most was my insurance dropped me. So I had to find an insurance company that would pick me up. <laughs> I was at one time paying as much as my car payment, or so around $300 a month for insurance. Yeah. And it took years to start going down. 
that was tough. A, about a year later, I was reading the newspaper, which sounds, that's such an old sentence. No one even reads the newspaper. <laughs> but um, I saw the officer that pulled me over was in trouble because he pulled over another police officer who was drunk. And instead of arresting him and taking him to jail, he decided to drive him home. You know, he left his car in a parking lot and drove him home. And the other officer said, don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. I'll stay right here. So wait, wait, well, wait, hold on. Let's let's really flush this out. Instead of arresting him for drunk driving and, mm-hmm. and instead of impounding his car and towing it, he allowed him to leave his car in a parking lot and then he gave him a tax paid taxi cab drive home. Okay. Oh yeah. Yep. (laughs) Which is just so, I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, I guess I shouldn't have be surprised, you know, but I was just so pissed off. I'm like, Oh my God. So then the, the drunk officer decided he did not want his car to stay in a parking lot overnight. And he got his daughter to drive him to his Jeep. And then, you know, he would drive the Jeep and she would drive whatever the other car was back home. So now he's lied to a fellow police officer saying he was staying home, but instead has engaged in child endangerment to get back to his car so he can drive drunk a second time that night. Exactly. And on the way home, both of them actually, he was in front, he was, and she was driving behind him and the roads were icy and he ended up in a ditch and then she was trying to gain control of her car and she also ended up in a ditch he ended up upside down. So um, she was able to get out and then go get him out of the Jeep. So neither one of them were not hurt, but um, another cop came up and saw what was going on and he did arrest the the other cop. <laughs> I mean, the endangerment that he put his daughter in, you know, there's just so many things wrong with the whole the whole picture. So he ended up getting fired, that police officer. The, the, the drunk one? Got the fired. drunk one, yeah. yeah. Okay. And the officer um, who let him go ended up suspended for a week with pay. So <laughs> vacation, basically. And then about a year after that, I saw in the newspaper he actually was awarded by Mothers Against Drunk Driving for his service because he was so uh, he had so many high numbers of people DUI um, arrests <laughs> right wow and I'm like are you kidding me like is this is this for real you know he didn't lose his job and now he's getting awards. There was also another award he won. Um, I think it was called like the Lifesaver Award. And I'm like, oh my God, this is just, just so crazy. If that other police officer, the drunk one, or his daughter had died that night, mm-hmm. do you think we would see him getting awards now? <laughs> you know, I would. I would hope not. 
but it's so twisted and things are forgotten so easily, you know, that <laughs> who knows? I mean, I would, I would hope not. I would hope that he would have been fired. I mean, I think he should have been fired for letting that officer go. Because, I mean, you were just driving home like most people do. We get popped for, you know, drunk driving, even if we haven't done anything, quote unquote, of, right. you know, aggressive on the road. It's... Yeah, I mean, I was 500 feet from my apartment, you know. He, it, yeah, that it's, it's just crazy. And not to say I didn't deserve the DUI. In a lot of ways, I think that it was good. I mean, I, did I ever learn, you know? Uh, absolutely. It, yeah, I, I totally agree. You, yeah, I mean, you know, so I'm not mad that that happened. I mean, there were some things that they did. as Like at the camp, I remember one of the instructors saying, most likely we'll see you guys all again. And I'm like, oh, you'll never see my ass again. I guarantee you that. So I don't know if it's a technique they use <laughs> or what, but. Um, yeah, I, I think most police officers would hear this and know that that other officer was in the wrong by letting a fellow officer go home drunk. But there are a lot that would do the exact same thing because oh, it's yeah. the thin blue line of you, you got it you yeah know, and that's, you got it that's the problem I'm, that we all get outraged at is we're all held accountable for our actions but do you hold your your brother your sister in arms accountable and we hope that they do but exactly and for me it's always on my back it background check but this officer is getting awards so it's just, it really is hard to to stomach in a lot of ways. But I guess that's just how life is. <laughs> I fully support Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. I, I support mm-hmm. their, their reason. I support their, uh, their drive. But I do kind of have a problem that you're forced to fund them. Mm-hmm. Like literally the government has told you, you're paying for this organization. Mm-hmm. I, I, that doesn't sit well with me. Uh, right. <laughs> I'm not trying to get you all fired up, but just hearing oh, that, I'm no. like, oh, you had to pay for that? It, it, like you said, I, I support Mothers Against Drunk Driving. There's just, I don't know, there's just so many things that could be done better, I guess. But it did its job, but it also, it's one more thing that you kind of lose respect for officers and I don't want to lose respect for police officers. There's a lot of great police officers, you know, but unfortunately you've got the ones that um, aren't held accountable. It's something called officer discretion and Mm -hmm. they have the discretion to choose to arrest you for not using your turn signal. They (laughs) They can literally arrest you for, you know, whether it be running a red light or running a a stop sign. Now, 99% of the time, they choose to write you a ticket like they should, but Mm. they can use their discretion to give you a warning or they can use their discretion to haul you out of your car, arrest you and have your car towed and they're fully in the right. And this is where I have questions. I think that there should be limits. (laughs) And Oh, yeah. I mean... I remember in the newspaper article it said, you know, um, the officer that arrested me, you know, he wasn't sh- 
necessarily didn't know that that was a another officer. Like bullshit. Of course he knew it was another officer. You know, if he didn't, if he thought it was just a regular old guy, he would have hauled his ass off to jail. Because I guess the officer that uh, wrecked his car, it was like a a county versus city, or or you know they weren't the same. I think the police officers should go through all the things that you went through, all those classes, put on the goggles, all those things. <laughs> yeah. So they understand what a drunk driver actually is too. If they, maybe a lot of them do, uh, you know, but it might give them pause when their fellow officer is drunk driving for them to say, you know, this is a bad thing because it's really easy for them to do a sobriety checkpoint and get on your case when you're drunk driving. But, right. It's, you know. yeah, it's different. It's always different when it's a, a an officer, you know. That's that's my story, I guess. And I have to say, the officer was very nice to me. He, you know, he he um, put handcuffs on in the front, which was very nice. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it doesn't make what he did right. Yeah, what what he did for you was justified and professional mm-hmm. and all that, and he showed you courtesy and discretion, mm-hmm. but. I, I hope that we're coming off as very balanced here and not because I'm really not trying to slam a cop right now. I'm, I'm really no. not. I want them to arrest drunk drivers. I absolutely do. Uh, and I do, too. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Yeah. You know, I mean, like I said, I I feel like in a lot of ways he could have saved my life because it's really easy to drink and get in your car. And I have not since I was arrested. And that was eight years ago. What he did was the right thing for me. But you know, when it comes to another officer, it's, it's so different when when they're pulled over. So I want to see justice and I want to see it applied evenly and fairly. I think that's what everyone wants to see is, is justice applied fairly. And yeah, you know, everyone needs to be held accountable yeah. for sure. So that's a crazy story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You take care of yourself. Okay. You have a good one. Our final story is from Colin. Colin's always good for colorful descriptions and strong opinions. Yo, what's up, man? <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing good. Nice. We haven't talked in a while. I know we haven't really. Yeah, uh, my name is Colin Fitzgerald. I guess I'm a, what would you call me? A podcaster, a musician, a video guy, a bunch of things. You're all around talented. Oh, (laughs) you know, they say jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, that's how I feel. That might be my my, uh, qualifications right now. So you have a story that you've shared partially with me once and right in a cab ride yeah we actually were we're coming back i i met just not to interrupt but we i met you guys for your generation y meetup the night before the meetup and we kind of all had time to kill so we went and, and went about town and in the cab ride home we came a little bit close to where this happened so i i know i started telling you the story what happened what were you doing that night when was this Okay, so let's we'll, we'll take you back. 
I've listened to every episode of Peripheral. First of all, I think it's a great show. I'm it, it's absolutely fascinating to hear people with like what could be considered fringe. I don't consider it that, but what could be considered like fringe lifestyles or kind of like you know um, experiences that that land outside the norm and hearing people good kind-hearted intelligent people share this that you know their side of 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 the story is i think invaluable to, for people to humanize you know people who have been arrested for drugs you know these are things that um everybody needs to have a little more uh understanding of and i think so peripheral is absolutely amazing for that hearing people with stories that you know don't make this american life or things like that you know because they're a little more um on the edge or the fringe of society uh, i think it's a great show so first of all i Thank just you. want to say that that's amazing it's not going to be one of the really tear-jerking ones that's okay <laughs> so but uh so what i came on to talk about was when i was arrested and spent 25 hours in uh the judicial system i could say the 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 jailhouse uh here in in new york city i i I went to central central bookings which is basically the place you don't want to go it's where everybody in manhattan who's arrested in a certain area ends up it's it's definitely the most crowded the most packed the uh the least likely place um for you to get out of quickly so it's where you don't want to be arrested in new york first and foremost this happened on october 17th i'm sorry 2012 i was playing a show with my band at the time we had just put out an album the previous summer and uh we're playing something called the cmj uh showcase which is i don't know if you've ever heard of that justin um cmj it sounds familiar is it like cbgb's it's what it is is um for every year since I guess maybe the eighties, if I'm not mistaken, they they do. It's it's a lot like uh, South by Southwest. It's a it's a music festival that stretches across several days in October every year, and um and in several venues. But it's kind of for a band of our level, um, which was not very popular. This was this was a a great thing to get. It's this College Music Journal. It's a it's kind of a prestigious. Um, gig to get if you're an up-and-coming band. Um, I was always jealous of bands, and this was our first opportunity to play the CMJ Festival. So it was a, it was a big deal to us. You get yeah. you get the passes, you get to see a lot of other bands. And, and CMJ, just like South by Southwest, would bring bands of really high caliber and then give other bands a shot. And it was like this really cool kind of... Um, communal thing I, I haven't been to any cmj shows in a while but at the time it was it wasn't quite taken over by the commercial thing it was still had some um credibility and, and, and certainly meant a lot to the people who played it so for me it was a big night um we were playing the cmj festival at a place called left field on ludlow it's in the lower east side of manhattan and it was uh it was a re- relatively new place uh it only been around for a little while so they had a, a like many of these venues, they had a night full of music. So we were the third or fourth band on, got a bunch of people out, you know, woohoo, CMJ it was a Wednesday night, but whatever. And we had a great show. It was fun. It had all the fun things. I mean, it's still one of the most me- memorable shows for me. My amp broke half the way through, so I had to do like the Ziggy Pop thing, which I had never done, <laughs> which is just say- I just sang without a guitar. Anyway, it, it just I just mean to you know kind of paint the picture of how it was a really nice night. That it was unseasonably warm. I felt even though it was only October, mm-hmm. it was just a nice night. And so at the end of the show, I'm outside with a, a group of friends. We're all hanging out and. Um, I guess it all started when I saw this wall of graffiti 
It was a, a corrugated steel kind of gate for a, a, an establishment next store to uh, left field. And uh, there was a lot of graffiti on it. There was some band names. It was, it was one of those things where I'm like, you know, this is probably people, you know, signed their band that just played the venue. Kind of a cool thing. It, it was in an adjacent building. The thing was covered. I mean, it was covered in bird shit, graffiti, whatever. Like, it was just a, a, a piece of shit gate on a, on a building. And uh, I had a, this giant Sharpie marker uh, for set list purposes. Someone gave me, they're like, yeah, it's like eight Sharpies in one. You can write really big on it for set lists. So I just happened to have that in my pocket. Um, reached out in a, in a moment of stupidity, about to get a cab. As soon as everybody walked out, I'm like, hmm, where is everybody? I'm bored. Wrote the name of my band, The Barons, on this steel gate. Um, not thinking anything of it. And then all uh, the other graffiti yeah. and stuff on there. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever been to New York or any city, I imagine. And when people close up shop at night at your local uh, storefronts, what are you going to see on those gates? Just tons of graffiti. That's just what happens. Um, it wasn't any any kind of like, uh, you know, it wasn't the front door of a church. Let's put it that way. It was a uh, graffiti laden. I actually saw the graffiti a month later. And it took me about, I would say, a good two minutes staring at this wall, knowing about where I put it before I found this tiny lettering that I did. So anyway, it was it was the, the strangest, weirdest experience. I've always, when you tell your stories, Justin, about how, you know, you were a good kid who just lived in a boring area or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, y- y- your mind was moving, you know, faster than you, than your age, you know, kind of, you couldn't keep up with it. So you had a lot of energy and you got into trouble. And when, when you tell these stories and you, and you say things like, you know, I'm, I like to tell these stories because it's, you know, I did something with my, I made something of myself. I kind of have a, a, a very similar feeling. Whereas like, I was one of those kids who never did anything out of malice, mm-hmm. never tried to hurt anybody ever, but I just was always in trouble for little shit. <laughs> Dumb stuff, um, yeah. Yeah, but I never, up until this point, I had never been arrested. I'd I'd come close. I'd run from cops. I'd hidden from cops. I'd, you know, by the skin of my pants. And I remember at one point I was like, you know, if I do ever get arrested, because especially at the time, I'm like smoking tons of weed. I have no shame about that. I don't give a shit what anyone thinks. Um, I like weed. It's fine. I, I'll stand up in court and say it. Yeah, it's just one of those things is like, always getting into little trouble, but never getting arrested. And I always thought, well, weed's the only thing I do anymore that would get me in trouble. I'm not climbing on a roof or breaking in some abandoned building and whatever. And I said, you know, if I ever get arrested for weed, fine. You know what? I've gotten away with it while I was a kid. So I guess the day of reckoning came, although it wasn't quite, as I'll explain, about just the weed. Uh, It was more about the graffiti. So anyway, I'm standing there, just write my band name, put the cap back on the pen, and all of a sudden, and, and this is the kind of thing that I thought about a million times. You think about what if the cops came after you? What, could you dart away? Could you, you know, I've never been like, hey, I'm going to run from the cops. But I, I could not tell you how amazing this was to behold because all of a sudden there was no one there. And then all of a sudden there were four people there coming from two directions, two from one, two from the other. Mm-hmm. So uh, before I could even really think, uh, th- I was surrounded And I was like, you know, for a split second, I'm like, are people coming to attack me? No, I'm in a public area. What could these? Oh, they're cops. They've got to be cops. Plain clothes, right? Yeah. Um, I noticed that they had come out of this this cab that was parked. It's a narrow little street, and it was just parked there. And, you know, I wouldn't have thought to, like, look out. Cabs are like whatever. In New York, you just see right through them unless you need one. You know, they're just part of the tapestry. 
you know, while I was keeping an eye out, sort of, I didn't think I was doing anything that crazy. These guys, there was four plainclothes cops in a cab undercover right outside the venue. And they just seized on me. And before I knew it, I had two guys behind me, not quite restraining me, but like one has a you know, arm on my shoulder, a hand on my shoulder. The other guy's like, Hey, uh, what are you doing here? What is, uh, blah, 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 blah. Can you give me that pen? Give him the pen. Starts asking me all these questions. I'm like, wow, is this really happening? It was just like, boom. And I was like, I was drunk. I just played this really fun, successful show at this big night. Yeah. And, and it was like, I, I just, this balloon was deflating quickly. And you got and this graffiti like, sting operation coming down on you. It, 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 exactly. I, I, I could not believe, like, I wasn't wasted. Like, I, they just appeared. Like, their formation, I mean, these guys know how to to get the jump on someone in Manhattan. It's just, that's what they do. So, yeah, I mean, it was just shock at this point. I'm like, okay, well, weird. Um, what? And then they're like, you know, did you just write that? We just saw you write this. What does this mean? And I'm like, uh, it's just a band name, uh, you know. We just played this venue. I'm just like, okay, well, hold on here. And the next 20 minutes was very confusing. I was searched three or four times while they're on the phone with whoever, walkie-talkies, going to and from the car, always someone. All of a sudden, they come up behind me uh, and handcuff me tightly. And I'm talking really tightly, like fucking ouch. Like, not only was it so hard on my wrist that it was instantly, like, searing pain, they also handcuffed my hands very, very high on the back of my on um, back, yeah. uh, uh, up my back, yeah. right? So they were as high as they could go, and it was like being in a. I, is it a chicken wing? I think that's what that is. When someone, yeah, it was like it was like that. I it was instantly debilitating. I was just like, holy shit, okay. And uh, that's when my girlfriend, she was a new, very you know, pretty new girlfriend at the time. We're still together, thank goodness. But like. <laughs> It, it, she walks out, other people walk out, and all of a sudden I'm being put into a car, and I cannot believe this. One thing I left out, after they handcuffed me, I'm standing there. They search me one more time, and they find my favorite little hidey spot. Oh, has almost burned my ass a million times. It's I like to put things in the little... I shouldn't say this in public. In the little pocket in your jeans. You know that little fake little shrunken pocket yeah. you have in your jeans? The, the pocket so had, inside yeah. the pocket. That little guy. I put this little bud of weed. Of weed. I, I mean, if I had to for the uninitiated, I would say it was a ah, third of a gram, quarter of a gram, not much at all. In this little cellophane from a cigarette pack. But I didn't even think about it actually, to be perfectly honest. When they were in, so the third time they did a search, they found it, and he's like, just holds it up in front of my face. Now the guy who, this is the original guy who was kind of leading the group of detectives, was. Not a, I wouldn't say a bad guy. He didn't really strike me as a bad dude. In fact, he uh, reminded me a lot of Carver on the wire. He looked like him. He would dress like him. He had like the badge out, and he had that kind of a laid back attitude. Like this guy's not gonna really fuck with me. I didn't, I, I didn't feel too threatened by him. Uh, the other guys were the ones who handcuffed me way too high and shit. But I kind of felt okay in this guy's company. What happened next was crazy. So they get the pot, and he's like, "Look it, we're gonna take you downtown." We wouldn't do it without the pot, but graffiti is a gang offense. Oh, God. Yeah, so in New York, and, and I have a couple of friends who get up uh, in the field of graffiti, as they say, uh, in, in the past at least, and who have been I had one friend who went to Rikers Island. If I had gone to Rikers Island, I would have shit my pants. For that, graffiti? that place is scary. 
yeah, and he wasn't even caught with graffiti. He was caught with an open container, but he had a backpack full of graffiti materials. Oh, paint and pens and stuff. Yeah, so if you have enough of them and they catch you in the right thing, they can use that to hold you. So, um, shouldn't that just be it, a fine, like write you a ticket for $200 or something? Or, yeah. What if you're a kid on the way to art school, Yeah, you know, which there are many of in New York. So, yeah. it, but the thing is, is because of the, and I'm not really totally familiar with the laws, but some asshole basically said, you know, a lot of my constituents are old people complaining about graffiti all the time. They're fucking calling my office all the time. How about I lobby? And then another person, and then another person, and suddenly everybody's lobbying for for graffiti to be associated uh, inextricably with with gang activity. So, which, which th- it's fine, and make it illegal. Graffiti is obnoxious, and it is whatever vandalism. But arresting somebody, booking them, taking like that just seems crazy (laughs) it does seem crazy and i would agree with you that it can be obnoxious but i have a lot of feelings about when you put a lot of people in an environment and something grows out of it that it can't really be unnatural good or bad it might be an issue that needs to be dealt with but with graffiti i've seen a lot of beautiful expression while i've lived in new york you know it's so and there's bad ones or shit yeah there's taggers and then there's like when they do a a big artistic painting of some type but you know somebody that just comes along to a storefront and tags their name on the front window that's annoying and obnoxious so yeah it it really all depends and there's and there's you know there's people who may start out obnoxious and then get a following and it and it happens i mean um somebody used to tag well i won't get into it too much but um we started to see someone we knew's tags getting a lot of notice and a lot of respect um, on blogs and there's people out there who just like tour it and take pictures and tag it because they like it as an art. So anyway, I had never done graffiti before at all. So this was none of that. Yeah. But, uh, throughout the night I kept on being questioned and I was, I'll get into it, I guess, more linear way of explaining it. But, um, all night, every time I was in someone news custody, they'd be like, so you, uh, you tag a lot. And I'd be like, what? So you out there a lot tagging? What's your tag? What's your tag? And I'm like, I don't have a tag. I don't do this. And I'm like, and it was very clear that right away that someone wanted to like pin more graffiti on me because everyone wanted to know what my tag was, whether it was this cop holding me for a second while that cop went over there. Everyone was just trying to get out of me what my tag was. So I started to realize, oh, this must be big money for them, uh, for the you know, for the police station because if they can get you on one and you admit it then everything that says that across the city, well, they might have a chance of charging you with that too. Yeah. When they took me, they first took me to a normal police station. I was put in a holding cell. I was told repeatedly, we're going to let you out tonight. We're going to let you out tonight. We're going to let you out tonight by the cool carver from the wire uh, looking cop. Yeah. The, you know, they put you in front of this archaic, giant, ridiculous apparatus to take your fingerprints. And we're talking like, it was embarrassing how low tech this place was for like one of the quote unquote finest police forces on on the planet clearly no one gives a shit about supplying these people with anything close to adequate because if this is supposed to be the best um it took about 45 minutes not kidding to get all my fingerprints they had to roll each one 10 times while this big scanning piece of shit operated at this loud i'm just like they're typing up their reports on these computers that look like they're running dos i'm like this is garbage like the I work on Salesforce. Like one of these places should just sell some cheap software to the cops because they're using 
the worst yeah slow and they're all packing with one finger at a time i mean like i could not believe like technologically how just incompetent this whole process was so like if uh, they could have booked yeah. you in 10 minutes they could be booking people through there all night long with efficiency, oh, oh absolutely you know, but instead yeah. the whole system is just gummed up with the process and not only would that benefit the people who are being arrested it would absolutely benefit them a small investment at any point would uh make all their lives easier but no one gives a shit enough yeah it's not that there's no money for it. It's where the money is being allocated, quite frankly. Uh, I have a lot of opinions about that. But yeah. it, just to get back to my personal experience, I was put in a holding cell. There was one other kid with me uh, about an hour after I was there. They'd come by every 20 minutes, bang on the, on the uh, bars and be like, don't fall asleep, don't fall asleep. Uh, eventually, I was able to get a jacket, my jacket that they took to keep warm. Because, of course, you're always cold in, in any kind of jail cell, at least that I was in. Uh, they made sure that you're goddamn freezing. Uh, there's no heat coming through there. Um, so, And then they would come by, and if I had it over my face, they'd bang on the bars and tell me to take it off. But... Not horrible. What it got horrible was when they took the, the me and the kid who, who ended up being, in, and I say kid, he was like maybe 16. We go to a van with several other inmates or whatever you want to call it, and we're going to the courthouse to be processed. I said I was being, I was told I'd be let out tonight. They're like, oh, well, your arresting officer left. Sure enough, gone. The dude who was kind of cool, gone. No explanation. He assured me I'd be out that night. And I cooperated, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have necessarily caused a scene, but if I knew that what was going to happen would happen, it would have been, I would have resisted somehow. But yeah, so then all of a sudden I'm like, wait, wait a minute. What are you talking about? I'm supposed to get out. They're just going to process me and let me go. No, 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 no. You're going to see a judge. Uh, By this point, it's one thirty in the morning. So I got arrested at 11. At this point, I'm, I've been at the station for at least a couple hours and now they're taking me to the courthouse at one thirty in the morning. Put me in cuffs again, way too high, way too tight. The kid behind me instantly is like, ow, and he's young. And that's how I, what I wanted to do, but I'm not, I'm not giving uh, these cops a, the hint, a hint of emotion or satisfaction. anything. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we ended up sitting in the back of an SUV all together, and eventually you can't sit up anymore because of the way they cuff you. So we were facing opposite directions, lying down in the back of a of a cop car because you can't sit back on your arms when they're up like that. Yeah. So an hour and a half later, this kid is like practically crying. My cuffs are too tight. My cuffs are too tight. My cuffs are too tight. They finally come back and they lower them and loosen them. And I'm like, guys, my cuffs are too tight. They're like, you haven't said anything yet. You haven't said anything yet. Now you need to, no, no, you can suffer. (laughs) Whoa. Okay. Meanwhile, these cops in this car who are watching me asking me what my tag is. We, We were in that, SUV for an hour and a half outside of the courtroom. Then we go back to the precinct. They're not taking anybody. <laughs> like, what? They're backed up. They're not taking anybody. We got to bring you back. So I went and sat in the holding cell for another hour, went through the whole rigmarole again, brought out, no jacket, cold, freezing in the back of this car, lying down. My arms are completely numb at this point from being cuffed. And they finally get us to central bookings, which is known as the tombs because it's like three floors below ground level or so below the courthouse in Manhattan, like the courthouse where they shoot all the law and orders. Mm-hmm. But you, the way you go in, you'd never know it. You go in through an alley, 
this is crazy shitty looking you know my experience was almost exactly like um the show the night of the night of <laughs> yeah because the way that they processed him there and the way that they kept him in the holding cell and the way that the the station look that he was at before he was taken uh to jail which i assume was supposed to be the same place i was taken to uh judging by where they picked him up and everything um that precinct looked identical it was like they t- they went in and mapped it out perfectly it, it was exactly that i i got like these flashbacks watching the night of and i was like holy shit and everything about that show was absolutely real except for the if you can imagine the cops are uh much crueler I would say just reveling in the suffering of anyone and everyone. When I was in the car, I would say maybe 20 or so cops either watched over me or I was left temporarily in the custody of. And I heard things that I've never heard ever. Just the worst. I mean, just every other making fun of of homeless people, prostitutes, whoever they would come across in our many because we're in the wee hours in the morning in Manhattan and. We're seeing a lot of weird people. Everybody's just a victim to, or a target, I should say, to these guys. And I'm just hearing shit, and I'm like, this is a gang. This is not a group of law enforcement. This is kids. I, at the time of my arrest, I think I was 30. These were 20-year-olds. Just like I was like, if you didn't have badges on, people would be, would call you a gang. Um, just the way that they, you know, and then they would, like, fuck with each other. Then they leave the car and got go god knows where and then come back like laughing and there'd be like a little knowing glance between them and who knows what the fuck they just did and i just was like watching them like wow um i knew that they did not have any idea of like respect for anybody as the night dragged on that became more and more of like a kind of ghoulish reality that i woke up to but um just to move it along, the process of going into the tombs was crazy. A lot like the night of, you just keep going down floors. You keep going to more narrow areas. Uh, eventually, they uncuff you. They process you. You go into a series of offices where someone's like, are you suicidal? Um, are you this or that? You each have to have like 30 seconds with some kind of doctor or psychologist or whatever. And these rooms are rat shit infested. Um, they're concrete boxes. These people clearly work there, you know, nine to five or whatever, or, or they, you know, shifts going on and no one could be bothered to clean the rat shit out of the corners. It was like a nightmare. I thought I was being led into a dungeon. I'm like watching these people at their computers poke with their completely inefficient fingers because they haven't even been trained to use a computer keyboard in their filthy <laughs> yeah. rat shit offices. And then not even just rad shit, dust just in the cor- in every corner. I couldn't imagine walking in there and not taking a fucking paper towel and cleaning out the dust from every corner. And this shit hadn't been cleaned in years. I mean, I would say, I don't know how you could accumulate that many like cobwebs, dust, and rad shit in the corners. And, and these people just walk in there every day and set down their lunch lunchbox. It was revolting. I'm like, this is a lived-in, worked-in place. All these offices, there's doctors sitting there. No one's lifting a finger to clean up the fucking <laughs> accumulation of absolute rancid filth. And it wasn't like, you know, you could step on shit. I'm talking about in the corners. Like, like no one is inspecting anything. You know what I mean? Like, you walk in, you look in, yeah, it's a dusty, shitty, concrete office. But when you look closely, no one's looking closely. No. That's what I'm starting to realize now. And I'm, and I'm like, these people are miserable. And they were. And I'm like, I would be too. If I was the type of person who could go into this office, sit down and work, and not even take a wet paper towel <laughs> to the desk or something, the, whoever's hired for this job is not someone who cares. It's just flat out the impression you get. 
I am being hard on them, but I'm being hard on them because I watched it firsthand. So it's the truth. What you could say if I worked with blah, 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 blah all day, maybe I'd be like that too. But as we'll get into, these people aren't violent offenders. The people that I was stuck there with were stuck there for bullshit like me. Yeah. It's it's like, okay, well, you broke the law. You're being arrested. Why should we make this pleasant for you? But I would say, okay, if you attack somebody in the street or if you are a violent offender, I get it. But for everybody else, you go through the same thing. We all get put through the same process, no matter what our offense is. You know, for me, like, I recognize my privilege as a white dude. I grew up in a small town. I wasn't rich. You know, I didn't struggle like people do. I struggled like white people do. You know, I don't for a second, like, want to whine and bitch because there's a lot of people who had way less of an advantage than I did there. But... You wonder, it's like you're, you're nameless, you're faceless. They don't know if you got caught peeping on somebody or stealing a purse or like me, writing a band name on a piece of shit steel wall. Yeah, They like don't a, care. Like you know? two, you're just, two inches of font got you this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And like each floor you went down, you felt like a little less human. The tombs, they call it. But yeah, once you get down there, you're you're like, wow, I'm just in a line of people that moves slowly. We're stopped. It's like a military. St- I felt like I was in boot camp because of the way that they're like, take two steps up, stop, keep your hands at your side, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I've never been in this since like maybe gym class. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so you go through, you're not suicidal, you're not this. Then here comes my life for the next. I uh, got there at uh, 2.33 by the time I got into the holding cell, I'd say. And then I, I did not move from that cell till 10 p.m. the next night. So that was my home. And so for the for the next however many hours, that is, because I'm not doing the math, without light, without any kind of idea, you know, our, our we didn't have our phones or anything. Um, so I couldn't check the time. No one had a watch. I was just in this room full of people. I'd say there was about 30 people in one, a cell the size of a, a pretty large bedroom, I would say. Maybe uh, 20 by 15 or something. Yeah, maybe. I, I'm not good with measurements, honestly. But, like, yeah, like, if, if someone had a master bedroom in, a, in a, like, a nice house, like, not New York, like, somewhere where you could, you know, like, a nice master not, bedroom, not I would say almost size would make sense to me, yeah. but not, like, a huge one. And, and there was a few of those. I was put into one, and it was metal benches. It was freezing. Um, there was way too many people in there. There was a dude going through um, heroin withdrawal, so he was either shitting or throwing up on this metal toilet in the corner the at only, all times. The, the only toilet in the whole place, right? Oh, yeah, the only yeah. toilet. And, yeah, of course, you'd have to sit. And, and take a shit in front of everybody. Luckily, I didn't have to, and I don't. I think I would have killed myself before uh, suffering that indignity. But it was a horror show. I mean, the, this dude was writhing on the ground, going through withdrawal. No one's helping him. People are occasionally. All of a sudden, you'd smell some weed, and you'd be like, "Who's got fucking weed here? Like, what, what, give me some of that." <laughs> um, everybody was there for the the sixteen year old or or so who was with me ended up in the same. We had we had been together for the since the the uh, holding cell at the precinct there, and uh, he was in for being in the vicinity of a ban- an abandoned beer in a park after dark. Him and his friend police came up he said that he didn't he wasn't even drinking he did have beers in his bag i don't know he didn't have to lie to me i don't know why he would he was like actually we didn't even drink we were meeting there he just got there we saw the cops and because we know what cops do we ran and so he's there 16 years old probably didn't even his parents probably didn't even know where he was the handcuffs thing was he wasn't bullshitting i mean it hurt like 
a motherfucker. I can't imagine being 16 as opposed to 30. If they hadn't have handcuffed you, it's not like you would have ran or anything. Like they already have all your information. They have they have you. <laughs> we were fully processed. Yeah, yeah. But there was this need for like this control and it was intense and it was a mantra down there and everything became about like dehumanizing you in these subtle ways. They after however many hours of, of hanging out in here, somebody comes by and like, okay, drinks and lunch or whatever it was. I think they called your names if I remember correctly and you lined up or they just numbered you and, and brought you out 10 at a time. And of course you have the tiny water fountain that you literally have to put your lips on. Uh, it's three inches away from where the heroin withdrawal guy just sprayed diarrhea everywhere. That's where you get your water for the day and night. So we get this, I don't know, if I was at camp, we'd say it was bug juice. But it was like this fucking, it looked like lemonade. It was sugar. It was sweet, mind you, with no flavor. In my wildest dreams, I'd picture like a, a cup of fluoride tasting like that. Like it had like a strong sweetness, but no sugar to it. Like like nothing satisfying about it, even in an overpowering way. It had no lemon flavor. It was just a lemonade looking drink that made my heart beat and my and I felt like I just swallowed 30 grams of sugar like one spoonful at a time it was absolutely disgusting I didn't get it the next time it was offered which was like 12 hours later or whatever and then we got you know, slowly got our meal which was um, a sandwich quote unquote it was two pieces of bread that I think that they wouldn't even serve to Guantanamo Bay prisoners I don't know um, it was like this bread. It was cardboard. It tasted like cardboard. It looked like cardboard. It was technically food, I guess. And then there was this layer of brown Vaseline is what I would call it. That was supposedly peanut butter, but it was like this separated translucent brownish grayish glistening jelly that made me sick, dried out my mouth. I was drinking out of that shitty drinking fountain for like two hours just to get so my mouth would stop being dried out. So they're, you know, they're feeding you like animals, but also going the extra step to make it especially inedible and awful. There's no reason for that. It was beyond disgusting. It was like, this must be the nutritional minimum required by anybody. And now we're supposed to be people who are innocent until proven guilty. We haven't seen a, a judge. So yeah, yeah, I get it. We're not going to get a five-star meal but this didn't even resemble the worst food. Like, they wouldn't give this to anybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, long story short, uh, I eventually got out of the cell at 10 the next day. I can't describe how empty and, and awful that time was. I, I, I feel like, and I don't ever want to, like, you know, make light of, like, true post-traumatic stress. But, like, it was a tiny inkling of it because it was such a horrible, dehumanizing experience. Like there's people there that got arrested three, four times a month or something. And they're telling me about this. And I'm like, I don't know how you do it. I guess I am fucking weak because, and I still remember like that feeling. Uh, and it was horrible. I mean, like pulling on the bars just, just to see, I'm like, this is the hardest material I've ever seen in my life. Everything around me, even if I got out of this somehow, I mean, you're just like fantasizing after a while. Cause you're delirious. Like, even if I got through that door, I have endless corridors, these concrete, you know, labyrinth and, and tons of cops. And like, I'm like, this is the most stuck anyone could ever be. And I always thought in my head, like when I would read about like, you know, great leaders or like certain people who went to like prison and wrote, wrote a book, you know, I always, when I would always think about that, I was like, you know, if I ever went to jail for something, I would just like use it to explore my mind. Right. 
So I couldn't sleep. So, I mean, I just had, you know, hour after hour after hour to sit there, you know, and I was just like, felt like garbage. And, and eventually, like, I realized I'm like, I can't think about it. I have a lot of creative impulses. Like, there's, there's plenty of things I can fill my head with when I'm bored, like projects I'm doing and stuff. The whole time I just kept on thinking, like, what about all the times you've read people like incarcerated and then they like, come, you know, I wasn't incarcerated, but I was just trying to make myself feel better. And I could not like nothing made me happy. I couldn't like get lost in a single thought or memory. It was like painful. The place that I ended up trying to sleep, the only place I could fit was a, a tiny uh, jagged area between the end of the bench that was like kind of sawed off in a jagged way and the beginning of the bars. So it was like enough room for someone to squeeze in sideways. I was squeezed in and then hunched down and I had to go in sideways first and then hunch down just to find a place where I wasn't standing because it was so overpacked. And after six hours of standing in a room with no nothing going on, You'd be surprised how where you find to uh, to rest. Yeah. So that was my little spot, and so, it was absolutely awful. They kept on coming by and then being like, "Judge isn't going to be seeing anybody today." At like four p.m. the next day, I'd been there since three a.m. They're like, "Everybody's staying here another night," and I was just like, "I was like, no, you uh, you can't do that." And then someone's like, "No, they just do that to fuck with you. They do that all the time." I'm like, "Are you serious?" They're like, "Yeah, they'll come by and say the judge left or the judge got sick and everyone's staying another night just to keep you hopeless here." I'm like, "What the fuck?" And sure enough, like at 10 p.m. that night, they lead me out to a different area. And so at 3 p.m., I had been there for 12 hours. Now we're on another seven, uh, seven hours. Or, or And I was about to pull my hair out at 3. And so now we're at 10 p.m. And we just get led one or two stories up. And they don't tell us where we're going. They just lead us up. I assume I'm going to see a judge eventually. Or be slaughtered, you don't know. Yeah, pretty much. They're they're taking us out of the cell one by one over the course of a few hours, and um, I get to go out, brought up to another holding cell, and I sat there for a solid two hours. No one told, and all of a sudden, uh, when we went into uh, that room, it was clear that people were seeing lawyers. So at that point, before I sat there for two hours, I did know that I was going to see a lawyer, and it was just this glorious feeling, right? And I'm like, oh my God, we're here to see fucking lawyers. The judge is going to see someone tonight. This is crazy, like... Finally, after two hours of waiting there, they call my name. It's like the weirdest cubbyhole thing. They, there's this big wooden door, and they open it, and then you're across from like a... It almost looks like some kind of old schoolboy desk, but it's like bigger, and it has like a wire mesh fence between you and your uh, court-appointed attorney. So she shows up, and I'm just like, I don't care what you have to do. I need to get out of here. I'm like, I can't hack it. I've been here since 3 a.m., I'm literally going insane. I, I, the only, I can't sit down. There's nowhere to rest. There's nowhere to anything. And not, you know, not only that, I was drinking that night. So if you ever, if you ever just sat in a, in a room full of fluorescent lights while your, your hangover slowly increased, that's not fun on its own. No, you're all light sensitive and everything yeah. makes you nauseated. Yeah. And I've not been able to get any, like a good solid cup of water in a day. You know, I've had this sugar drink and little fucking tiny trickles of water from the shit splattered. I don't even know. I don't think it was shit splattered, but I'm just saying it was close enough to the toilet to be fucking suspect. Yes. I'm here like rubbing the thing off and then trying to put the water into my mouth. And so I'm just like dehydrated. I feel like garbage all around anyway. So this lady's like, don't worry, don't worry. Your girlfriend's here. I'm like, holy shit. I couldn't call my girlfriend because she had a New Jersey number and there is a phone in the cell. And every time I would call my friend whose number I did know and get her number because I, I did, hadn't memorized it yet. Yeah. I didn't have anything to write it on, so I would memorize it and then dial. And I kept on thinking for hours that I was getting the number wrong every time. That's how delirious I was. What ended up 
being the case was that she had a New Jersey number and you can only dial in Manhattan. So <laughs> of all the inmates there, nobody had any fucking family in Manhattan, I can tell you. Not that area, not the Lower East Side. Nobody could get through to anybody who could help them if they're out of the area code. So the whole time, I didn't know if anyone was looking out for me. I kept on calling my friend Chris because I memorized his number like 10 years before. So every time I called Gina, my girlfriend, I, I would be like, oh, my God, I must have gotten a number wrong because I had to remember an area code. It was a New Jersey number. I didn't know the area. Like every time I had the number, I'm like, OK, five, four, whatever, two. And then I die and then I hang up. And oftentimes someone else would have to go first because there was a constant stream of people waiting to use the phone. So I would get off and then have to remember the number till I got back in the line. After five people, I'd be going over this number in my head, then dial it again and be like, oh, I must have gotten it wrong. No, it was because it was a New Jersey number. I didn't, I, I just couldn't reason, you know what I mean? Well, but At that how point, did you know that you couldn't dial a long distance number? I just assumed that I was getting something wrong and it was maddening. It was just this weird little, like, loot, like, uh, my my mind dug into and it was like you know so the attorney says your girlfriend's here and i i, I couldn't tell you like how look at maybe i would have woken up the next day and had a better outlook but i was like i hadn't slept going on 24 hours and and, it, and just the experience itself was like i really felt like at the, like about to to lose my mind by the time i got to the lawyer like it was absolutely the most trying on my mental state of any experience I've had because it was just like everything that could needle you and dehumanize you over and over again and every hour stretched for an eternity. So when she said your girlfriend's here, she's waiting for you, she's out there, I was just like, I sat down in a chair, I'm like, okay, what's next? I don't care. Someone's out there. Someone gives a shit about me. Like, I'm not forgotten. Um, I couldn't get a hold of my parents. I wasn't even going to call. I mean, if it ended up being a big court case, I might, but I'm like, you know, in my 30s, I'm not going to call my parents and be like, oh, I'm in jail. <laughs> but I didn't have it, you know, for a while, I just convinced myself, like, I just felt so lonely and knowing someone was out there for me. And she even said later that she almost broke up with me that night because <laughs> oh. we, we were so new. And she was like, I'm fuck this. I, I don't need some dude who's getting arrested. I mean, she totally understood, but she said at the time it was like, you're looking yeah. for the red flag to see if yeah. this is the right, right person. Right. And it was, was reckless. You know, wh whatever you can say about it. I was drawing on the outside of a building in downtown Manhattan at 11 at night or something. So it was like, you know, a, a busier, it was a stupid drunk thing to do, but in a way it was like a, it was like a, one of the, a turning point for us, but it was like, you know, she had a moment of fight or flight, I think. Um, and then she just decided to be there for me and was there for me. And it was like, you know, the beginning of really strengthening our relationship. After that day, it was like, you know, it was at that moment where you go from like really, really liking each other to really being there for each other. And it changed the whole thing, you know, it was a bonding moment. Yeah. And like it was traumatic, but it was like not about that. It was about that somebody out there was there for me and like she was just I mean I loved her to death already but like I knew that like that she was there to fight for me you know yeah. for whatever from that moment on I was just like whatever it was another two and a half hours before I saw a judge after I saw my lawyer but I knew it was going to happen that night she said she would be very surprised if it didn't I think it was like one in the morning when I finally got released but uh up to that point we finally get let into the courtroom and after being in like a dungeon, Hell you know, old. monster's basement for however many hours you walk into this beautiful New York City, you know, giant, clean as a whistle, like everybody in suits and looking official. And I'm just like, all you people could see the 
cauldron of filth below your and i'm not even talking about the criminals like (laughs) if you could have a a glass ceiling on that place and you could look down and see what's below like maybe you maybe this decorum would would be a little a little more ghastly to most people because it was it was pretty sickening to me it made me think of the worst of humanity where like all the people below are the ones holding this institution up yeah, it's it's like the the subhumans holding up the the yeah. Elysium. <laughs> it felt like that, and slowly rising out because I saw my lawyer a little floor up, and then I did this, and then we're finally there, and it's like, oh, it's pomp and circumstances. I was like, I was ready to burn the fucking place. I looked at everybody, and I'm like, I'm like, you're all in suits and ties, like you're you're monsters, like, and it wasn't even just bitterness. It was like, and the subsequent parade of of charges that went through the court before I came were kid with pot, kid with pot soliciting a a woman who's trying to make a little bit of money in the only desperate way she knows how now she's held up all night. God knows what, even if she has a kid somewhere that she, you know, that's with somebody until she gets off of work, who the fuck knows, but it's not pretty kid with weed kid with the open container in a park. How many of these people do you think were white? No, not very many. You, Minorities are targeted the most. Well, that's what I saw. And and it was pretty unequivocal. And the the amount of like bogus charges and the if it was like violent crimes, who's gonna argue with that? I'm talking a parade, hours of bogus bullshit charges that you know are either gonna get a two hundred dollar fine maybe or just be dismissed. But that's gonna be another day in court. And I'm just like, who has anything to gain by this? And I will just say, like, I saw a lot of people who just shouldn't have been there and why they were there is, I would say, I I wish I could get into it more and what kind of the, I mean, how this was like so exemplifies like institutional racism. It's like not even funny. I think that, you know, just skimming the surface on that, the point is clear. It was a lot of people who were at a disadvantage through no fault of their own, in my opinion. Um, who were targeted, picked up for petty crimes, and it was just, like you said, gumming up the works earlier. Holy shit. This, I mean, this judge, he must be screaming in his head. He was a reasonable guy. He was dismissing charges left and right, but he must be sitting there being like, what is this? What is this endless grind of human just processing? Who does it serve? It's court fees. So what? It's money. What, it's a couple bucks here and there. What happened to you and your charges? Oh, that's funny. (laughs) To make a long story short, because it's taco night, I eventually saw the judge. My court-appointed lawyer, lawyer, unlike yours, was really sweet, but I don't think she really had to fight for me too much, but she was really comforting, so for that, I give her an A+. She got the court date, not delayed, but like deferred or something? What is it? Continued. Yeah, yeah. So there was just like, yeah, he's here. We're going to let him out. He's gamefully employed, blah, 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 blah. Sets a court date, right? So I come back for that court date. You have to go to uh, the same courthouse. You go in, and I'm getting chills just being there. You go downstairs and uh, or wherever it was to a clerk. I waited for two hours in that line. Uh, you talk about the post office, DMV. Wait till you go to a courthouse. I'm talking 12 people in line. They're probably the same shit every day in, in and out, and they, they can't get it done in less than two hours. Miserable people. And I, you know what? I'm not even being harsh. Like, miserable people working there. Like, I'm sorry to say. So I get up. This lady's like, oh, no, 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 no. You you have a warrant out for your arrest right now. And I'm like, what do you, what? I'm getting, like, fear is bubbling up in me. And when she sees my my name and my ticket thing, I'm like, are they going to, I'm in this building. I'm like, if I run right now, maybe I can call a lawyer and have them settle it. And I was like, 
am I going to get out the door before a bell? Like, I really was thinking like this. Like, I panicked. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, your court date was two weeks ago. This was like a month and a half after my arrest. And I'm like, no, no, it wasn't. I have it right here. And they're like, well, I don't know what that says. But right here, it says your court date was two weeks ago. And you have a warrant out for your arrest right now. And I'm like, ready to run. Like, yeah. If I can get out of the building, I'll let somebody else sort it out. I'll go stay with my family in Boston. Like I don't, I'm not going back to any goddamn holding cell. Yeah, it's like you're doing what you think is right. The date you're you're showing up on. If there's a glitch in the system, it's not your fault, but it is. Yeah, yeah. So they're like, well, you have to go up here. You have to prove that you were this and that and the other thing. And I was like, oh my god, this is crazy. I took another. You know, I the thing was, I missed a day. I missed two days of work for being arrested. I missed the next morning. And then of course I was there all night until one in the morning, got home at two and couldn't get to sleep because my teeth were chattering and it was warm out. So I'm like, Oh my God, what the fuck? I happened to see my court appointed lawyer there. And I go up to her. I'm like, Hey, and she's like, Hey, yeah, you're here. You know, I have you up today. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, it's on this thing. She's like, yeah, yeah. You're on the docket. I'm like, no, they said I'm a fugitive. I'm, I'm terrified. So she went up and talked to the judge. Luckily, she was like, we both have the same date here. They got it wrong. I'm like, okay, phew. So I got it rescheduled. I go there, and they throw it out. Tossed. Gone. No case. You had to go through all that pain and suffering for almost you know, over 24 hours, two days, and then you went through all the crazy anxiety for a month and a half or however long of wondering what's going to happen. And then you get told you're a fugitive, Right. All and I'm this. already in a you know, like a building where they could just close it on me in my head. I mean, what if you'd ran? And then I they, was they ready tackled. to go to Boston and be like, let's let a lawyer, you know, mm-hmm. tell them that I'll come back when I'm not under arrest anymore. And they figure out my court date. But I was it was so irrational. But, yeah, that's how I felt. You're anxious. You're you have anxiety. You, you know, you've done really nothing terribly wrong. And you're thinking about running and people go, well, why'd you run? You must be guilty if you ran. Why, why'd you lawyer up? You must be, you know, feeling guilty. (laughs) And and here you are over petty vandalism crime that was ultimately thrown out, but you're so freaked out by your treatment that you're willing to make a bad situation worse by running. But the way you've described this, I understand where you were coming from. You know, it doesn't sound crazy to me. And and honestly, I'm not like a tough guy in any like I'm not the kind of guy who's gonna like say like oh I'm so tough, but like not much scares me. Just honestly, like not much gets under my skin like that, and actually scares me. But like that, I felt like it, like this is what it's like to be. And I felt bad for all the people that I talked to all the time. We're like oh this is the third time I'm gonna arrest. Oh it's always something petty. You know I I don't have any room in my house, so I'm out smoking in the street and someone busts me, and then and then they're in jail for the night again. It's like no big deal for them. I'm like. So what is that desensitizing this poor kid to, you know, like the 16 year old who was there because he may or may not have had a beer in a park. And I'm just like, call the fucking parents and just have them pick them up. Like, yeah. And, <laughs> and the, the most I can gather from my entire experience, what could they, what they got out of it was like maybe 50. I can't even remember. I think it was just like little charges here and there, $20 here you know, for my court fees and shit. It couldn't have been more than a hundred something dollars altogether, fifty, a hundred. I don't even but, remember. But it this probably point, cost but. them more time and resources than whatever you. I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine how much it would it would cost them. I mean, even with, to just keep that human machine turning at all hours. Yeah, the meat grinder. Yeah, I learned nothing but distrust. It was the only time I ever did something like that. It's the only time you've been arrested, right? 
Yeah, and 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 they told me to my face, oh, we wouldn't take you in for this pot, which was not was like a tiny amount, but but we have to because of gang things. And they're like, oh, hmm, that's a convenient thing to target certain neighborhoods with as well. You know, I'm I'm the white dude who got it, but how many like people like people of color who graffiti is a form of expression that's like really built into their neighborhoods? And hey, I I used to practice and and play in my abandoned areas where no one has fixed the fire hydrant because the people in that block aren't worth it to whoever. And like <laughs> the people in that neighborhood, you know, a lot of them just hung out on their stoops and shit. I mean, this is not culture that anyone. And so, you know, cops can just go to these neighborhoods and pick people off for minor offenses because of the nature of where the kind of uh, districting gentrification pushes certain people, certain income levels. You know, the, the NY, New York City is notoriously good at, at corralling people. And then, uh, and then targeting them. The open air market is the low hanging fruit for them to pick it off from. Yeah, the very lowest of low, um, as far as tears in the crime yeah. <laughs> machine are the ones that most targeted because yeah, yeah I mean, they're the easiest. And 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 why they're there is, is it, it, why why those are the areas that are targeted and why those places have uh, such higher crime. I'll tell you what, it's not because of the color of the people's skin there. No, it's, I can tell you that you criminalize citizens if you go into any neighborhood i don't care how affluent it is if you start pulling people over and arresting people you technically drive the crime rate up because there's more arrests happening yeah so there's that yeah <laughs> I mean, and then there's um you know just the whole way that people of color have been traditionally you know when they become uh affluent enough and you know traditionally in our country um you know in the in the 50s 60s and stuff a white flight takes place and that still happens all the time you know the more people of color that move in you know you can count on white people moving out and unfortunately that's a trend i mean it's not universal and i'm not trying to make these sweeping generalizations but when you think about these neighborhoods and how many people have left an industry with it because of racism then Cops target the areas more for petty crimes like drug deals. Like, hey, if there's nowhere to work, I don't care if someone sells drugs to keep their family afloat. Like, do I want people moving keys of heroin? No, but there's a reality. And drugs, we all know drugs aren't going away and drug dealing isn't going to go away. Fortunately, when this shit happens and, you know, after, you know, a few generations of, of this shit happening with, like, industry fleeing and people trying to get jobs in their neighborhoods, like, you know, yeah, people resort to drug dealing a lot because there's a lot of demand for it. And there's a demand in every neighborhood, no matter how affluent it is. I mean, Donald Trump is, trust me, <laughs> blowing lines every night. I mean, you can, the guys on Twitter, this is like, if you crowd up him and his friends, like you would some of these neighborhoods, if you if you hit well, Wall it, Street like that, well, you'd dude, find if, plenty of drugs it, to reach your quota. There's I mean, no doubt. I, I heard stat this many people in this group of 400 and something were have been arrested for drug deals or drug possession and DUIs and da 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 and they're like guess who it is oh it's our house of representatives <laughs> yeah oh like... yeah dc man whoa those are the only cops who like right they they're like uh who do we target today well we could target the rich white people they're a bit of a hassle but they're really easy to get yeah you follow it back to the source you follow you guys did a great episode gen y about the war on drugs and and that type of thing and you and you hit it on the head we're gonna 
revisit that one day with a part two. Great, because that thing that that I was cheering, I was like cheering internally when I when I heard that episode. When I go back and listen to it, I'm not even happy with it because I feel like we merely scratched the surface. That may be, but it was a good deep scratch, man. But anyway, man, I mean, you know, that's about the long and short of it. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Thank you for sharing, dude. It was it's a compelling story, and I'm glad you didn't hold back because. Sometimes you just you got to hear it like it is, and you know. the only reason for telling the story is not to whine. It's it's just to tell the truth, and 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 it was ugly what I saw. So it wasn't the worst thing ever. It wasn't uh, as they say is like first world problems. Yeah, maybe, but it was still shitty, and people go through it all the time. I was lucky enough just to be mm-hmm. to have to go through it once so far. Every time we I, have a brush with the system, it's very eye opening because it's nothing that we expected. Um, I'll let you get to your Taco Tuesday. <laughs> Taco Tuesday, man. Thank you so much, man. It was a pleasure to talk to you as always. And thanks awesome. for having me on. I hope uh, this story does something for somebody. Yes, it will. I hope these stories shed light on what it's like to be handcuffed, to be arrested, be booked. If you haven't been through it yourself, it can be a very terrifying experience. If you are a police officer, hopefully you understand what the person being cuffed is going through. It's never a pleasant process. Every brush with the law, we always learn something new and gain further understanding of how our system works.